Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. everybody and welcome to two pints of maggots and a packet of hooks the fishing podcast this is episode three and you join myself dave where we're going to talk through the press pack we're going to look in the tackle shed and of course we're going to have the big chat and today's big chat is absolutely fascinating we join rob hughes england carp team manager and all-round broadcaster and of course host of On the Bank in BT Sports, where we talk through fish psychology and we talk about the England carp team and the crossover of disciplines such as match fishing into carp and carp fishing into match fishing. It really, really is interesting and promise you it's going to make you question some of your thoughts when it comes to fish behaviour and uh, feeding as well. We're also going to be in the tackle shed where we're going to look at some of the latest pieces of kit and also, of course, look at the weekly papers in the press pack. Now, the press pack's a little bit different this episode because we've missed the sort of cutover of the monthly magazines. So we're just a little bit early for the likes of Improve Your Course Fishing, Match Fishing Magazine to land on my doorstep. So it's just the weeklies and the social media that we're going to cover off um, here on episode three. And the first thing I want to start with is pretty sort of uh, quite sad, to be honest, and pretty poignant. Um, It's all over social media um, and it's all about a chap called Bill Allen who had a really popular uh, YouTube channel called Easy Fishing. And if you do a quick search on social media and, and catch Bill's very, very last um, video that he does, it, it's incredibly sad. He, he's obviously very poorly and he's about to go to a hospice, but he's obviously very determined to catch a, a couple of fish uh, for his final show uh, that's gone out onto his YouTube channel. He's fishing there with his lad. Uh, and just reading here off uh, off of the Angling Trust's uh, post that they've put, um, Bill Allen's Easy Fishing series on YouTube has inspired and entertained both newcomers and experienced anglers for the past three years. In that time, he's produced nearly 160 videos, mainly showing how simple baits, equipment and tactics can be successful in catching fish. Sadly, Bill has a terminal illness and recently produced his last video with the help of his son, Mick, before being admitted to a hospice. Uh, and uh, just echoing what the Angling Trust goes on to say, you know, it's, it's a big thanks to people like Bill that gets the the message out there, the essence of fishing, um, and and anybody that inspires and attracts anybody new to the sport. I bow my hat to, and uh, and I certainly bow my hat to Bill um, as he uh, as he's in his last final days, which is incredibly sad. But uh, I, I'm sure you know he's 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 comforted in the knowledge that he's helped a lot of people catch more fish. 
Okay, something else that I saw on social media was a Facebook group called Simple Match Fishing. Uh, really interesting. Uh, they have a section called All Our Yesterdays. And, and as we've done on episode one and two, we've harked back to the past. We've really sort of dug up the memories and gone through the archives. And, and it seems to be what... Um, simple match fishing does this all our yesterday essentially shows a picture or an image of an angler on the bank and you sort of got to guess who it is uh there was one that i spotted you know a chap called dave barrow i remember growing up he was like the canal maestro um he was the go-to person to get tips and tricks on catching fish from canals etc so it's things like that it's a little bit of fun um so for those that can remember uh days gone by um that could be really uh, interesting for you um, another one last week in Angling Times was actually speaking of Keith, Keith Arthur. Uh, it was in the Ang his Arthur's archives, they call it. And it was a lovely article um, talking about how the London District Angling Association um, had had a bit of a, a sort of a, a hiatus, I guess, from fishing the nationals and had come back into uh, the Division 3 and how they went about approaching and, and winning that national. Um, and it was really, really interesting to see, you know, the team had travelled across to the southwest and done various practising. And, and as per usual, it happens with a lot of these big matches, you know, uh, Lady Luck isn't always on side. A, a big drought left, um, you know, hardly any water in some of the venues. And it, it tells you how they approached and eventually won that uh, that title in the 70s. So that's quite a nice piece to sort of read back again, going through the archives. Uh, a cracking article this week in uh, Angling, Angling Times on the page 39 with our guest today on the big chat. It's, it's from Rob Hughes. Now, Rob Hughes is going to talk you in the big chat through various sort of fish psychology, if you like. And, and this article in the paper this week is very, very similar. It's called The Impact of Rain and Bite Indication. Have a read. It's fascinating, just like the big chat is with Rob, which you'll hear very, very soon. Another great article which I saw um, in the paper this week was uh, harping back to when uh, Bob Nudd, again, it's Keith Arthur's archives, this week's version, it's when Bob Nudd was put up for Sports Personality of the Year. He's there, there's an image of him in the chair with Terry Wogan. And he talks you through sort of what happened at that time and, and sort of what went on. And again, a fascinating read. Um, some very thought-provoking pieces um first of all big fish one that caught my eye a couple of weeks ago was by a chap called pa uh, paul scowen three pound three ounce roach um and he says following a run of four blanks and breaking one of my old rods persistence has paid off and i bank this three pound three ounce roach um doesn't mention the venue but it's an absolutely blinding fish and uh i tip my cap to you sir because that is a, is a belter now, alongside that clonking roach, another fish that caught my eye was by a chap called uh, Keith Wesley. And he's weighed in this clonking 38-pound pike. And he was on a day out with uh, with Martin Bowler, who writes, uh, writes an article in the Angling Times as well. Um, and he says, in the water, Martin and I both agreed it looked to be around 25 pound, but the depth of it was tremendous. And you can see on the image for it with Keith holding his fish up, it's got a right old gut on it. Uh, one bite, one fish, you know, you'd be happy with that, wouldn't you? So they were two sort of standout fish that I thought I'd, uh, I'd share with you. That big stonking roach at £3 and then that huge hungry pike at £38 with the, with the big old gut on it. But of course, with predators, we are in that sort of time now. It's, it's spawning time, um, sort of February, March. Springtime is, is when the predators tend to spawn, uh, whereas the rest of the course, fish, of course, when the water gets a lot, lot warmer. Um, so a couple of uh, big fish to point out there. Now, some thought-provoking articles um, a couple of weeks ago in the Angling Times. 
Uh, there was a, a question that was posed in the match fishing selection where it says, is the all-round matchman a thing of the past? Has it gone forever? And then you've got four anglers giving their opinions. You've got Tommy Pickering. Now, on episode two, we sort of discussed this. We, we, we got in depth around whether an angler could go around chasing those big money finals and fish for the country where you'd need these variety of skills and he gave his opinion on that on episode two he also does in the paper dave roberts throws his 10 pence worth in steve hemingray and also darren cox and they've all got slightly different sort of take on it tommy's perspective is 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 one that you sort of i'd sort of run with you don't necessarily need to do that anymore you know there's that much going on whether it be commercials now with all the river fest stuff it's, it's booming with the feeder championships if you want to stick to one discipline You've got that much going on that you could actually really get your head down and stick to it. To be an all-rounder and represent your country, you'd need to you know, have a bit of an understanding of everything. Uh, things like the UK champs still go across various venues, so you've got to be an all-rounder for that. So, you know, there's a mixture, and, and I think it's probably one where it depends on the season. You know, a lot of lads will fish commercials through the summer and then fish silver matches in the winter. So that's that's versatile as well. So it's it's pays your money and picks your choice, really. For me, I like um, a variety of fishing. I, I've fished commercials pretty much every summer now for around 10 years. And this will be the first summer where I'll try and mix it up a little bit more because I've enjoyed the silver fishing so much through the winter. I've enjoyed a variety of venues. I like getting a stick float out. I like throwing a, a method feeder out. I like throwing a feeder for a barbel, whatever it may be, just to mix things up. Because sat on a snake lake for five or six hours when I only get to fish once a week, is just not really what I want to do anymore. Um, so I will mix it up. I'll pick and choose where I want to fish. The only side effect of that, of course, is that you have to have a variety of tackle to suit all these different venues and and uh, and different destinations. But it is what it is. That's your choice. If you want to sit on a commercial week in, week out and catch carp, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. If you want to have a variety, then that's great too. If you want to sit there, eat some sandwiches and blank, fine, if that's what you enjoy too. And similarly, another thought-provoking piece in the back of this week's Angling Times in the, uh, the it's called the Big Match Question, uh, is the hot topic. It says, how do we get more team sponsorship? And again, four opinions. You've got Angling Trust Senior's Competition and Performance Manager, Ben Thompson. You've got uh, Rob Hughes, our main man this week on the big chat. He talks about stop whinging and act. You've got Phil Ringer. He says you need to look wider. And then you've got Peter Drennan, who talks about having more standout events. So they've all got different opinions on the thing. And again, it's worth the read. Have a little look at those different opinions. My opinion on it, uh, to get wider sponsorship, it's all about TV, isn't it? It's all about viewing figures. It's all about um, getting it in front of the non-angling public and getting them to understand what it's about. And how do you translate the excitement that we all get when it comes to catching a fish or putting a weight of fish together to somebody that thinks that we sit there you know, in a flat cap and, and, and having a, a flask of tea all day. So it's about modernising, it's about getting it in front of people and getting them to understand the essence of what competition fishing is all about, for sure. And that then, viewing figures will then attract, of course, bigger companies and bigger companies will then invest. But they need to see a return on their investment. It's as simple as that, really. Um, it's just like any business, whether you're whether it's sort of uh, working travel and tourism or whether it's computing or whether it's finance, you know, you need to see a return on your investment uh, and that's how you will attract bigger names. So another thought provoking piece um, just there. 
Okay, the final thing I want to just cover off on the press pack is a really nice article in, in the AT in the England Times, and it's called A Pike Lake Like No Other. And it talks about how Hlandegfed Reservoir rewrote the record books, and it talks through uh, the 1989 capture of Roy Lewis's uh, record-breaking pike, uh, which came in at £46.13, ounce, and essentially how the venue has been in sort of predator folklore ever since it's, it's a nice article with really nice images and pictures on there some stunning photography and, and and something that's just a little bit different from the norm uh, i'm not a pike angler whatsoever but um i'd love to get snared up with a couple of those fish that they're showing on these pictures so brilliant so that's the press pack let's move on and have the big chat teddy fisher baits specialize in the manufacture of fishing ground bait and additives we combine a 40-year-old proven fish catching recipe and the experience of our skilled team. Fishing is an adventure, and here at Teddy Fisher, we strive to make that adventure a success. Go to www.teddyfisher.co.uk to see our full range of Okay, welcome to this episode of The Big Chat. And my guest is England Team Cart Manager, all-round broadcaster and BT Sports presenter of On The Bank. It's Mr. Rob Hughes. How are you, sir? Yeah, very well. You? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good. Now, I saw some little pictures of you sneaking some roach out on a river recently. What's going on? Oh, yes. Of course, during lockdown, um, we've been a bit restricted on where we can and can't fish. And I've got a couple of carp waters that are local to me, but it's not necessarily the sort of thing that I would be really, really keen on going out. You know, I like the bigger waters. I like, I like that sort of thing for my own personal fishing. Uh, so really, we've just had to look at other types of fishing available. Yeah. And just like, you know, like, like most of the people watching this, we've all had our journey, haven't we? We've all, we've all started somewhere and ended up somewhere. And whether that's starting catching gudgeon on the canal and ending up as a match angler or what, um, so of course I'm primarily a carp angler, but I love every single type of fishing. And with on the bank, I go around sort of you know all over the place doing all sorts of things. But we were flat out with the series just before Christmas, and I said to my lad because I'd not been able to spend that much time with him. I said as soon as I've got that parked and out of the way, yeah, we'll go out and have some little short sessions, and we'll do lots of local stuff. What do you want to fish for? Uh, and he said he wanted to fish for anything really so today we'll go roach fishing tomorrow we'll go perching the day after we'll go piking the day after we'll go carping so we did little things like that not that we're fishing every day but you know just bouncing around and i thought well it'd be nice from my point of view to make it a bit spicier to set a target so i would like to catch a whatever it is and and the first thing is you think oh a two pound roach i i I don't weigh many fish these days unless it's a record challenger or it's in competition because if I'd have set myself a target of a £2 roach and gone out and caught a £1.15 roach, that I was over the moon with until I put it on the scales. You know, are you happy or sad with it? So I said, you know what, I just want to catch a decent river roach. That's it. So, you know, there's plenty of decent lake roach around, but a decent river roach would be lovely. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah. they're quite hard to come by, big river roach. So went around a few different places Somebody tipped me the nod that there was a few roach coming out of this one place, went down it, and it was just, I've never seen anything like it. It was phenomenal, the roach fishing. It was just, you know, a, a big roach is, is just an incredible creature. And, and on the float, on the river, it was ace. 
when you see the flanks flashing in the in the clear water, it's a real sort of image when you're bringing them back. Definitely upstream. Quite hard, big roach as well. You know, when you're on the right gear, they they they're a really really good fighting fish. That thump that you get first, and then you know they're they're quite they're, they're a fast fighter. They're a bit different to a chub. You know, it, it, I've been doing a lot of chubbing as well, an awful lot of chubbing recently because my local river has got lots of what I class as reasonable chubbing, two and a half to four and a half pounds. Uh, you know, and 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 you, you you smack into a chub, you get the first thump, and then actually it's just a weighty pull. Whereas roach move a lot more, don't they? So you get a really really good scrap with a roach. A jag, uh, and uh, yeah. So so that was it. And I I'll, I've got to say I don't think I'll ever get roach fishing like that again because I just hit upon a shoulder fish, and I I would say. Again, I didn't weigh them. I just caught too many. This isn't being big-headed, but you know when they just come in one after another and you don't have time to stop yeah. to think about it. Yeah. I reckon I probably caught the thick end of 40, if not 40, 35-plus that were over a pound. Wow. Uh, it was it was ridiculous. Wow. It was just Fantastic. a big, big roach. Uh, and, um, again, I, I, I put 12 on a mat for a photograph. And we'll come to this in a minute, actually, because it's interesting the reaction to them. You know, there were there were actually three of us there, so we looked after these fish. But that sort of thing doesn't happen very often. Uh, so I thought, let's just have a photograph. And if you see that picture, uh, as a prime example, we didn't weigh them because there were too many. Uh, I didn't want to weigh them as a bulk, so we weighed um, one. We picked one that wasn't the biggest, wasn't the smallest, just to give an idea of what they were. And the one I'm holding is one pound thirteen. Uh, so if you have a look at the others that are on this, ah, like, okay. you know, just absolutely phenomenal. Haul. Yeah, that puts them into perspective. So, you know, they, it was just, it was amazing, absolutely amazing. But having said that, a couple of days later, I went to a different bit of river and we were chasing dace. Uh, and I've had a couple of dace up to six, eight ounces. You know, I, I, a, a dace is big when it gets over double figures, isn't it? So a 10-ounce dace plus is a good dace. Yes. So catching a few dace. Uh, the float went under, thump, reeling it back in again. And it felt like a dace, but a little bit different. Every now and again, it would give a little bit more of a kick. So it wasn't a streamlined thing. Anyway, bought it in, and it was a gudgeon that was just shy of seven inches long. I mean... <laughs> I, I read about that as well, yeah. It's impressive. <laughs> right. you know, and, and, but look, I, I'm smiling now thinking about it. I'm an out-and-out hardcore carp angler. I fish for some of the biggest carp in the world, travelling all over the place. And it's just been brilliant to get out on the rivers and catch gudgeon. The the common denominator is is fish between us all. And I guess when I invited you to join us on the show, it was uh, you know I'm not a carp angler. I, I catch carp, but I've never fished for carp. If that makes sense. And yeah, yeah. I, I think wh- whoever uh, joins me on these podcasts, regardless of what sort of denomination of the sport that that we we fish in our area of expertise if you like that is the one thing that binds us all and that's just catching fish and it's just that sort of pleasure and i think you've demonstrated it perfectly because it's been forced upon you by the whole lockdown piece so yeah really interesting but we have a bit of a theme rob we talk we talk sort of past present and future through these chats so how did you get into fishing in the first place was it your parents grandparents the usual route or how did it start no it wasn't a strange one uh, my uncle fished but no one else in the family fished uh it, it was really weird but as a child i'd always been drawn to water so you know a lot of kids like water anyway so i was always drawn to water um and uh used to wander up and down there's i'm from a town called Oswestry, which is on the welsh borders uh, up in shropshire uh so yeah, near the Midlands, stroke north. that's it yeah well there's a really interesting story about western pools um as you mentioned it 
I used to fish there before they owned it. So before Mike set the fishery up, it was owned by uh, a, a, there was a lad that I knew from um, from the town, and his dad was a farmer there. And it was only a stream; it was literally just stream running through the fields. There was there was none of that. It was a working farm, uh, and it, there were a few trout in it. So I knocked on the door. We used to fish the mill, and there was a mill race going uh, just by the side of it. Uh, and the stream, the main stream, just looked really, really good. But as kids, we'd sit on the wall and run a worm or two maggots under the bridge and spin them back up again and catch, you know, small wild brownies. Uh, and uh, in yeah. the end, I had the courage. So I knocked on the on the farmer's door and said, "Look, is there any chance that I can go and fish in your in your river?" And I would be, I reckon, I'd be eleven or twelve. Uh, I would think, you know, and that was back in the days of love freedom i bike down it's three miles away from my home so bike down the lanes knock on the farmer's door any chance you'd ever go and i caught the first trout there uh and if if any of you lads have ever been to western pools you'll know that in between the tackle shop and where they've got the bar it's the little bit of river there it was that spot that i caught my first ever trout from and i was over the moon because like a trout for a child is the first trout you always remember uh so yeah so that was from there yeah. so i've got really really fond memories of uh of, of western um but even before that, my family are from North Wales, and we would go from Oswestry Street to Denby every other weekend in my mum's mini. And uh, I don't know if you've been that way at all, but there's a place called Chirk, and it's got a very famous aqueduct by on the Llangollen Canal. And every time we drive around the corner, there would be loads of people sat on boxes underneath umbrellas on the corner by the side of the road. And I, every time I'd go past them, I'd see them and think, I wonder what they do. I really fancy a look at that. And that's what got me interested in fishing first. Uh, and eventually I said I'd like to try it. My mum bought me a second-hand six-foot rod from the, the – you don't have second-hand shops anymore, but back in the day there were loads and loads of second-hand shops around. Wow. Second-hand fishing uh, rod. And, um, and that's where I started. So Gudrun was the first fish I caught, which is why I've still got a bit of a love of them. Uh, and, and yeah, and that was it. From, from there an angler was born, and I followed almost certainly exactly the same journey that everyone else has followed that you want to catch a fish and then when you've caught a fish you want another one and then when you've caught another one you want to catch lots and then when you've caught lots you want to either beat your mates or catch one so you go into match fishing or big fish and and you mentioned denby we used to have a caravan over on the coast and we used to go to denby castle and all that sort of area and yeah. you said your mum's yeah, mini yeah. my dad had an old uh, mark one fiesta and somehow five of us used to cramp into that all the way over to wales brilliant yeah <laughs> very similar memories well um yeah well we, my, my mum had an orange mini clubman uh estate and you know you, you you can't do it now but i used to love going in the boot because <laughs> so, we've got the old yeah. barn doors on the yeah barn doors at the back and brilliant i could sideways out and lie down it was uh it was done you wouldn't be allowed to do it now of course no. but uh back in yeah, the, uh, back in the, the that was it i say 70s of course i'm only 25 years old so that can't be that can't of be course. a real day <laughs> same here absolutely well I, I guess that's an interesting point you mentioned around the love of water if you like so that leads me a little bit into the the whole diving piece i mean there's some great stuff um on youtube from yourself with various different companies where you've gone below the surface and give us anglers i guess uh, a sight of things that we've always wanted to see but we don't have the skills to do it. Now, obviously, you're a, a trained diver, so I, I take it you've got your paddy and all the rest of it. And and what what got you into that? Um, again, just a love of water and fish. So going back, um, our annual holiday was um, was Aberystwyth, 
Uh, that's, I think, where I first got into it. So um, we used to go on holiday to Aberystwyth, uh, and I remember trying to catch mackerel. When the mackerel shoals would come in, uh, it would be fantastic fishing off the front there for uh, for mackerel. And the water at Aberystwyth Beach is really, really clear. It's a stony beach. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I got myself a face mask and decided, I, you know, when you're swimming, I wanted to go out and see if I could see some of these mackerel and see some of these fish. And that was it. Just wanted to see what they were doing. Uh, so going back as far as, you know, being a little one, just wanting to get in the water and see fish. Uh, and as I got older, I just wanted to understand them a little bit more. And, you know, it's for for me, uh, 150% it's increased my understanding of how fish behave, of how they feed, about how they, you know, what they do. It's, it's really interesting when you, when you start dipping your face below the surface and looking at a world that we sort of understand, but don't really know very well. Uh, and then as soon as we start to understand it, so many pieces of the jigsaw start knitting together that you can second guess. And um, I liken it a little bit to understanding a language or um, or music as well, that you can pick the odd word up when you're learning a language. And then when you're pretty good at it, you can string a sentence together. But when you actually understand the language, you know what word comes next, how it comes next, what it does. And it's the same with music. If there's any musicians watching this, most people can bash a note or two out. Some people can then learn to play a number of notes together because they've been given a piece of music or they listen to a song. So, you know, I'm an Oasis fan. There's four chords in most Oasis tunes. It's, it's brilliant. You just play them on the guitar. But then when you understand music, actually, you know naturally what comes next and you know that C and a G go together. And it's the same with, with this understanding here. When you, when you understand how the underwater world works, actually, I can look at it and think, actually... That's where they're going to be. They're going to move this way, come this way, and you can track them through the through the undergrowth as well. You know, the, the, with with carp in particular and big, clear open water gravel pits, just as an example, it's a bit like a, a, a tracker going into a forest. So I can go underwater and immediately yeah. a whole host of things open up. You know, when you're above it, you see a flat surface and you might see the odd fish jumping out and you might see an island. But when you're below the surface... Imagine being in a, above a forest, you might see the canopy of trees, but you can't see what's going on below. But when you get below there, you see the tracks, you see the feeding spots, you see the open clearings. You can see whether or not something's been through. You look at the, you look at the undergrowth and you know that all the grass is pointing that way. So the general direction of travel is when they pass that spot, they go this way. It's exactly the same underwater, exactly the same. You can see where they go, how they move, where they like to lie up. And with that as well, with regards to sort of the fish behaviour, as you've already said, it's probably increased your own angling ability sort of tenfold. But we all think we know what's happening. That's the, that's the strange thing, isn't it? You know, we all think, oh, well, it's a bright day today. It's unlikely that the bream will feed, you know, as an example. Oh, the river's running clear. Um, you know, I think I'm going to have to gonna have to stick with maggots because it's going to be a tough one. You know, the barbel are not going to feed. We all think we, we know what's happening on the day because of experience but i think for yourself do you liken the the weather conditions of the day to 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 what you've seen when you've been under the surface and does that then affect your tactics 100 percent yeah a million percent yeah a million percent you see we actually as anglers we're pretty good at, at solving problems and if you look at how most anglers are actually quite good at catching fish and yeah. there are things that, that that you do that work now 
there's there's two things to look at here, and this is really, really important to make the distinction between commercial venues and non-commercial venues. So with commercial venues, generally you've got a lot of competitive behavior. So as a result, there's not enough food for the fish that are in there. And as a result, they're competing. So they're behaving unnaturally. Whereas in a natural environment, actually they do what they want rather than what you want them to do. And also because less of them, because they're not under so much pressure, they're not conditioned as much. And you can have both positive and negative conditioning. We're getting quite deep into fish psychology here, but you can have positive and negative um, uh, fish psychology. You can have positive psychology. Actually, if the bait's always going in the same spot, the fish know that it's there. So as a result, they'll come to it. The negative psychology is that if they keep getting caught from that spot, they realize it's dangerous and they disappear. So the dog knows that when you put food in a bowl and he hears that tinkle, that it's going to be put on the floor soon and it's dinner time. So as soon as he's there all the time, yes. he's not used to that being fed. Now, if every time you put the, fo- the food on the floor, you booted him in the ribs, actually, he's probably not going to do it very often or he's going to be very wary because he wants his food, but he's a bit cagey about it. And it's that, that balance between the two, really. Um, in addition to that, you've also got to look at the technical side of things because I think a lot of the time we um, somebody will solve a problem, whatever that problem might be, and then it becomes the thing that everybody does. But then the fish become conditioned to that thing, whatever it might be. So, for example, let's talk, let's talk about um, shorter links on a feeder as a prime example. You know, does do you need a short link or a longer link? So, as a result, somebody has been fishing in the situation; they've lengthened their feeder link, and they've caught fish as a result of it. And suddenly, they put two and two together and think this is the answer. So, everybody then copies them because they think that solved the problem and actually it didn't it didn't make any difference at all it's just it worked at that particular time and the problem then is that people then immediately think they've got to reach for that tactic again when things aren't working very well but actually what they're doing is they're diminishing their chances rather than increasing the chances um, I, I, I say this a lot the biggest problem that we've got the problem is we don't know what the problem is that's that's the biggest problem. I'll give you an example of this. What's two plus two? Go on. Should be what? four. Four. Easy, because you know what the problem is. Um, what's X plus two? <laughs> what's X? Yeah. Exactly. Now, if I told you X was three, it's easy. Yeah. If I told you X was 3,492.7, it's, <laughs> it's still easy, because as long as you know what X is, you can you can solve the problem but until you know what x is you can't solve the problem so what we do from outside of the water is we think about what the problem might be and we try and solve it because we think we know what's happening the advantage of being able to go underwater and see it is obviously i can see exactly what the problem is uh, and having seen exactly what the problem is the solution is really really simple um and uh, a lot of the time there are patterns like my job as england manager and any england manager will tell you this the, the first and most important job that you've got to do is you've got to put the right tools in the box. Because if you haven't got the right tools in the box, you can't solve whatever the problem is. So you've got to get the right blokes on boxes. I've got to get the right blokes you know, in the bivvies. We've got to get the right people to be able to do whatever you can do. And then after that, what we do is we pattern spot. And this is a big thing with fishing. You're just pattern spotting. Okay. You're trying to figure out 
what the patterns are to be able to catch you more fish than everyone else at, at international level. But where, whatever level you compete at, whether it's club level, whether it's national level, whether it's regional level, whether it's open, whether it's international, actually the level will be similar. There'll be some guys that are better than others, some guys that will be slightly worse, but that level is more or less where everybody is. So all we do is we just try and spot patterns and, and, and then having spotted it, you've got to work out whether you need to take advantage of that or you need to move away from it. So it's quite, it's, it's interesting. It's quite analytical. I'm a bit of a nerd, I'm afraid. I'm a bit of a nerd. So, And that's what it takes at the top level. Absolutely. And I think you've just hit the nail on the head. Well, I, you know, I'm a match angler, but I would say you talk about levels, you know, I'm a club level. I, I enter the occasion open, you know, I do okay. I can, I can catch fish. Um, it's, it, and like you say, it's when you can catch fish, the next step for me is, well, I need to, beat the next guy if you like or the next lady you know the person on the next peg so that's the that's the attraction for me if you like but what i find in my matches is that everybody does the same thing you go online you read up what's fishing well oh yeah it's 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 a banded pellet shallow and and all of a sudden everybody goes on and there's 25 people you know all doing the same thing and and as you say invariably it's the person who adapts the most on the day but also has that bit more of a natural talent that tends to sort of come out on top at the end of the day and and these big names these guys that you've filmed with who you've you know you you've done these features with what do you think is the difference for your international anglers, the match anglers that you come across? What makes them different from everyone else? Just finding the solution quicker, simple as that, is it? I think mainly, mainly it is, yeah. Yeah, their, their, their attention to detail. You know, if we're, if we're looking at the match angling scene, I've, I've probably watched more high-level matches than anyone else, than, literally than anyone else. Maybe Keith Arthur uh, might, be, might be close in this in this in the past um maybe andy ford um but the three of us do a similar sort of thing and we commentate on matches and yeah. what what i've got to try and do you know with the uk angling championships as a prime example you've got 80 very very good uh, competition anglers i've got to watch what everybody's doing how they're doing etc etc and and actually when you watch a match and I don't just mean visit to go and have a look at your mates, but when you actually watch your match and analyse what the top guys are doing and how they're doing it, and you commentate on what they're doing, and you're looking at the micro changes, it's those guys that just seem to be a little bit ahead of the game that are always good. Of course, there's an element of luck in, in, in fishing. You know, there's people that say there's no luck in fishing. You know what? There is. However, you've got two elements of luck. You've got good and bad luck. Bad luck on the draw if you're stuck in in a shitter. Let's face it, um, you've really got your work cut. Yeah, yeah. If you if you draw a flyer, actually happy days. But you don't necessarily win with good luck. And this is the, the the difference. You can lose with bad luck, but you don't always win with with good luck. In fact, you don't win with good luck. All good luck does is gives you a leg up, or it opens the door for you to be able to do the rest of it. And let's take peg one two four at Barston as a prime example. You know, one yes, two four peg. Everybody wants the end peg. It's a flyer. It's got more wins under its belt than whatever. So, you know, as soon as anyone draws one, two, four, it's like, well, hey, I'm nearly there. That's it. It's a given. But it isn't because you can fall off your horse there very, very easily. And some very big names have done that either because. And the pressure is on. That's it. The pressure of you've drawn the flyer. You've got to win this now. And, and you know, you, we, when we commentate there, you're almost surprised if the, the winner doesn't come from 1-2-4. And if someone doesn't win and they've drawn 1-2-4, you think they've cocked up. 
and and half the time they might have done but you know it's that it's that good luck thing but yeah you see, this is the problem because as soon as you get into one, two, four, and the same can be said about so many venues and so many things, and you've already spoken about it now, you may need to go on banded pellet six mils for whatever reason. Everybody's doing the same thing, and there's a thing in carp fishing that's very, very well known that you know if you follow the crowd, you'll be you'll be in the crowd, and you're just going to share a part of everything else. If you really want to be better than everybody else, you've got to stand out a little bit. And let me let me use some Brad Hancock from the Park team uh, last year. Look at look at the lineup that yeah. was in Park Masters last year. It was a phenomenal lineup. There were some incredibly good anglers. You know, you've got Des there, you've got Andy Power there, you've got Geldart there. You've got so many ultimate fantastic yeah. top anglers there. And and you've got Lad actually that that is a, a, a well, he's local, not local, but he's he's got a van on site. He's won through the residence match because they had to change the way that it worked last year to get qualification. And he's fished his own match, and he's he's he's, he's a barbel angler. And you've got a barbel angler that fancied having a bit of a punt at it. He's gone down there and he's smashed everybody out of the park, and uh, and he was using a feeder and three dead red. Uh, that's absolutely not how you fish jennies. Nobody should fish jennies with three dead reds. <laughs> Why not? Because you just don't. Why? Well, you don't. Well, actually, clearly you do. Because as soon as he drew the peg, he knew what he was going to do. It was a one-trick pony peg, really. He couldn't go out on the pole. He knew he was good at fishing that style. And he's just, he's, he's done it. And I'll tell you who's another one that's very, very good at that. Uh, Tommy Hillier. Uh, uh, yeah, another fantastic angler, Tommy Hillier. When, when I watch Tommy fish, he doesn't care what the convention of the lake is. You know, he knows what he's good at and he knows what he can do well. So rather than going to, you know, everybody rings everyone up and goes, oh, right, laugh at this weekend. How's it fishing? What should we be going on? And you, you sort of, you end up getting in the crowd and, and, and battling with everybody else. Whereas if you perhaps just stepped outside the box a little bit, and, you know, mate, it doesn't always work. We all know it doesn't always work. You fall flat on your face and embarrass yourself sometimes because what you thought would be a really good edge turns out to be crap. Uh, but there are yeah. there are things you can do. So but, yeah, yeah, I, I can think of a couple of. I mean, I wouldn't use the word mavericks, but uh, people like Andy Finley would be in that category, I guess. Uh, Giles Cochran would be similar. Um, I always remember Roy Marlow told me years and years ago. He said, "Do what you know, not what you think you know," and and I've always stood by that. Um, you know, why would I go yeah. on to, as an example, Barston's a great example. If I was to fish a match on Barston tomorrow, I would not be fishing uh, a method feeder at 80 metres because I just don't do it enough. I'd fish for the skimmers. I'd fish for my section. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, it's just the way that sort of I've been been brought up, I guess. But an interesting thing then that from the match fishing to, to the carp fishing side of things, I guess carp fishing is is huge, isn't it, Rob? Let's have it right. It's the fastest growing part of our sport. Um, there's a friend of mine that has a tackle shop actually up in Manchester called Carp Fever. Uh, Paul Adrian, his name is. And, and I remember when we had a discussion probably 15 years more, 20 years ago, and he was telling me he was going to open a tackle shop and it was going to be carp only. I said, you'll go bust. You, <laughs> you won't have the last 12 months. If you're not selling your maggots, casters and hemp seed, well, he's still here today, and I think he must be on about his 16th or 17th year and growing. So it just goes to demonstrate it's a massive thing for part of the sport. But are the lines becoming where, – where's the crossover? Because as a match angler, we've learned so much from carp anglers when it comes to commercial match fishing. 
has, has it gone the other way? Have, have your lads learned from the match anglers, from your yeah. day ships, etc.? Yeah, the, cl- the clever ones have. Um, but it's the same with anything because the, you've got the clever ones and then you've got the blinkered ones. And the blinkered ones, the blinkered match anglers think carp anglers are just a bunch of tossers who just cast far too wide, who sit there in their bivvies drinking a beer that's not really fishing, it's camping. Um, and then you've got the blinkered carp anglers that think anybody that sits on a box fishing for a roach smaller than two pounds is clearly a noddy that doesn't know what they're doing and they're just noddy bashing. And, and both wings there are, are, are just silly. Because when we do open our mind a little bit and have a look at, at, at how good um, our opposite numbers like I spend quite a bit of time with Jamie Hughes. You know, I'm in a really, really privileged position because I get to I get to fish with and associate with the best of all sorts of disciplines. Uh, and like Jamie, Jamie Hughes is just phenomenal. He, he, I've never met anybody like him that's as good as him. He's got this ability to understand what's going on below the surface as if he's there with me. And uh, I, I, I remember doing a, a if, you, if you saw it, it's on the Matrix Submerged uh, pages, and we were looking at um, plumbing up. It was a lake called Kingsbury Water Park, and it was a gravel lake. We have to go to a lot of gravel pits a lot of the time because obviously yes. they're clear and we can see. The clear I'd one, wasn't it? it was straight commercial. Yeah. Yeah, but showing, showing you guys, you know, a, a, a lake that you would normally fish, which is actually a muddy hole in the ground with 50 million fish in it and, and clay on the bottom. Nobody's going to see anything. Yes. You know, I've got to get that far away. True. So it doesn't actually have good telly. Uh, so he was plumbing his peg up, and we were looking at how he plums up and what, what he thinks was going on. And just his attention to detail was amazing. And I came back up and said, what do you reckon? And he told me exactly what I'd just seen and he'd learned it within five minutes. And and this is one of the things that, that has really stood out with with the match angling crossover into carp angling. What I mean by that is the things that we need to learn from you guys. The finesse and attention to detail that that goes into top-level match angling perhaps is lacking a little bit in carp fishing. You know, we've got ideas, but again, in exactly the same way that sometimes match angling can be stereotypical because you're reaching for the bag of pellets all the time, Carp anglers, they reach for a yellow pop-up and a Ronnie rig. And actually, they need to open their minds a little bit more about what they're doing. I think everybody isn't as adaptable as they should be. But equally, you know, you touched on it earlier, the best thing to do is fish the way that you want to. And as long as you're enjoying it and being successful, and that might be winning a brown envelope at the end of the match, it might be just having a nice day out with your mates. Uh, it might be catching a carp, or it might be sitting in the countryside having a chatter. You know, as long as you're enjoying it, it doesn't matter. But if you want to strive for that little bit of extra success, I, I think you need that little bit of extra effort. And and for me, attention to detail is is something that and, and finesse is something that the match anglers put in a lot more than we do by the very nature of the fact that your your rigs are smaller, your hooks are smaller, your, everything is more delicate. Uh, I remember Barston uh, again when we first went there with the with the British carp champs, and. There's one lad, and he's smashing a load of bait in with a throwing stick, and it's going all over the place. And Nigel Harry, he's gone, <laughs> yeah. You're, you're putting your bait all over the place. And the lad's turned around, and he's gone, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm applying the, uh, the area baiting technique. I want my bait to be about the size of half a tennis court. So you imagine half a tennis court. If you pepper boilies all over the place, rather than having a compressed area, the group of fish will eventually come in. They're picking, 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 but they're always looking. Half a tennis court is a really, really good size to pepper baits around because you're not reliant on a spot, particularly if it's an area that hasn't got a gravel bar or a hump. If it's just general open water, 
it's actually not a bad size. And, and as a car panker, half a tennis court isn't that big. And Nigel laughed. He went, bloody hell, no, I want yeah. my size of a tennis ball. You know, so the, the difference <laughs> yeah. is trying to achieve and what we're trying to achieve uh, is, is amazing. And, and, and both of us were looking at each other thinking, well, that's daft. But it isn't because it's the circumstances that you're in and, and, and how you're fishing. But you know, the, the, just going back to the diver, the, there's been some there's been some amazing findings. You know, indication is a prime example. You know, we test a lot of rigs. We do a lot of stuff. Uh, and uh, there's been some really interesting findings. If any of you guys watching this haven't seen it, have a look at Matrix Submerged for the, um, uh, I suppose, for the match fishing side of things, uh, and have a look at Understanding Underwater or um, uh, Underwater Answers. I think they're, they're the three different ones yes. that I've done, and it looks at all sorts of different um, elements from casting to rigs to bait application to indication, and that's from float to feeder to carp rig. Uh, I, I remember, uh, did you see the one with um, Jamie Harrison uh, that I did uh, ages I did. ago? Yeah. yeah. Worm went feeder. So, you know, That's that was, right. that was a yeah. right. You think, how on earth could that happen? You've got a 50 centimetre hook link and a worm. And he reeled it back in again, and it looked like the loop had gone through the feeder. It's like, how's that happened? Well, the feeder's landed, and literally the worm, everyone thinks it does that. Well, gravity just pulls it straight down, and it just went straight in the pot. So all the time that cast was out, it was never going to catch anything because actually the worm was inside the cage feeder. But it does. Now, it makes sense. Now, now in terms of, of anglers, um, we just said about – the match the match angler that thinks outside the box slightly you know potentially could come out on top what about carp anglers then is it that those guys that you say rather than reaching for the yellow pop-up who thinks out of the norm who thinks outside the box who's that sort of standout maverick if you like there's you know there's a lot there's if you look at if you look at mark holmes as a prime example who's a very very successful big fish angler you know he's caught i think he's caught He's had captures of three fish over sixty pounds. One of them was a repeat, but he's you know a sixty pound fish is is huge for the UK, and he's actually he's caught three over sixty. That you know that's 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 ridiculous. Um, he was the one I think that was responsible for really bringing salt and the use of salt to the the, the, the forefront. Um, just different ways of fishing. You know, he 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 doesn't he doesn't think like normal people. Uh, he, he thinks in a very very different way. Equally, let's let's look at the other side of it, and, and let's look at Alan Blair as another prime example. Now, Alan Blair is a, a quick hit, short session style angler. Yes, he'll carp fish, but actually, he takes hardly anything, and he relies an awful lot of the time on on something called a bread bomb, where he's literally just stalking with bread. So he'll walk around and, and, and just use that. If you look at um, two of the lads in, in my England team, Wayne and Ryan. Uh, Ryan Need and Wayne Mansford, you know, they've, they've won the British Carp Angling Championships twice. Uh, they've been in medal-winning international squads. Their understanding of bait is, is phenomenal. If you look at a lot of different anglers, anglers will have something that they're particularly good at. You know, I'll, I'll put my hands up now and say that I'm, I'm useless with rigs. I'm, I'm not technical with rigs in any way, shape or form. Loads of people think rigs are the most important thing. I think that they're quite a long way down. I've got a number of rigs that I want to use, but I'm not trying to invent a, you know, a double over the hair widget 
if I can get the bait in the right place, time the fish are there and encourage them to feed, uh, then actually the rig doesn't matter so much. So for me, the bait application, but more importantly, the location is is key. Um, yes. And, and, you know, I would put, and this might surprise people, but I would put bait color significantly higher than rig. Because if you can't get the fish to pick the bait up in the first place, the rig is irrelevant. So, so the rig only becomes important, actually, once the fish has picked the bait up. Now, if you don't stick it in front of the fish, it's never going to pick it up. If you stick it in front of the fish and it doesn't want it, it's never going to pick it up. So it, it, the, the, the relevance of the rig only comes in quite a long way down the chain of importance. And it's working out what that chain of importance is. Yeah. Uh, you know, other, other people will look at other things in, in different ways about why they think it's important. And it comes back again, you know, conditioning. You can condition fish to come in and feed if you keep pre-baiting. So as a result, putting bait in the same place all the time means that location isn't important because you don't need to find them, they'll find you. And a lot of this depends on the time that you're fishing and how much energy you've got at your disposal, how much time you've got at your disposal, how much bait you've got at your disposal. But I think the key thing for me, and what I've learned with this, just going through uh, my recent species hunt, and this is where I'm really enthused with with effort levels that what i found recently certainly since christmas i've had some really good grayling and i mean really really good grayling i've had that enormous gudgeon i've had the best roach hit that i've ever had i've had the best chub fishing that i've had for years i can knock a carp out left right and center so that's not too much of a problem but i've been catching quite a few carp as well i've been river piking um and i i, I don't normally pike fish that much uh, but I, I've, I've been doing a bit on the rivers because they're local, and it's been really interesting finding out where river pike are. And you know, I can I can go pike fishing for three hours, but actually only fish for three minutes. But I'll probably get one. Yeah, because when you look at where they are and how you're going, I'll probably get one. I'll probably get more than one. I don't normally get more than three. Um, but you know, within pike are, are the sort of things that when you when you're lure fishing for them, um, you'll normally have them by the third cast. And if you haven't had them by the third cast, you've got to do something else. Move um, on. It, yeah. Exactly. You know, it, they, 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 they either don't want it or you've got to harass them into wanting it. But normally a pike is sat there the majority of the time ready. They're real opportunists. Um, and and the, the, the thing that's, that's really, really got it for me, and it's been reinforced, whether it's been for pike or perch or grayling or roach or even gudgeon, is that, and this is really, really obvious now, but if you fish for them where they want to be, how they want it, rather than fishing for them the way that you would like to fish for them in the area that you would like them to be, you'll catch an awful lot more. And it sounds really simple, that. But so often we sit here because we want to sit here because it's a nice spot and we cast out to there because it's an easy chuck. And we bait up there because it's just the right catty distance. And if you spun 45 degrees and chucked it three yards shorter or three yards longer on the left or the right, you know what? You might find you get more um, or it's quicker or easier because, you know, think, think about it with your spot as well, with your match fishing, uh, with carp fishing again in particular. There's so many people doing it that you get on the spot. And, and I'll use a carp fishing analogy. I'm on the spot. I look to the far margin. I see a tree in the distance that's got a perfect point on it. I'm very comfortable between 40 and 80 yards. So the chances are that there's a reasonable chuck at 60 yards in the direction of that tree and it's straight out in front of the peg. 
And then when I cast out and find a little gravel spot there, I think that's brilliant. And it was a really simple, easy thing to find. And I found it. And the bloke before me found it. And the bloke that comes back tomorrow is going to find it. And you've got that conditioning thing that actually the food is on the floor. Is the dog going to get kicked when he goes to eat it? Yeah, here's one for you. So match fishing. Um, we all say summertime, you go down the edge last hour. Now, the thought process as to why we do that is because it's a, it's a carp's natural patrol route. Now, you've already said on this this podcast today that actually a commercial is a little bit different because they're overstocked and the fish don't actually act naturally, if you like. So have they been conditioned into feeding down the edge because that's what we've done for years and years? And And, and when you read the magazines now and you listen to the top lads, they say, oh, Fish are becoming harder and harder now to catch down the edge. They've cottoned onto it. Well, that's because they're getting kicked in the ribs like the dog, isn't it? Every single time, the majority of match anglers will go down the edge in the last hour. Do you know it would be really interesting to try? Going down there in the first hour. Yeah. So Flip the only problem with the head. first hour is that you lads make quite a lot of noise. So and, and when the ground bait mixers are out and the buckets are out and everybody's shouting and all the other bits and bobs, the chances are that fish will move out. Uh, let, me, let me give you two examples here. Um, the first one was the UK Angling Championship. So we were, we were watching, um, or I was commentating on the event up at Woodlands View a few years ago, and Jace Lebosque, um was doing really well. I think Woodlands View was round three, and he'd had two section wins so far, and he'd crashed and burned on the third one. He got Cox next to him on the one side, and he's eighth in section. And he is just not doing very well. And he knows that he's got to pull it out of the bag. And he went, ah, oh, stuff it. I'm going to try something stupid. So he's literally now, genuinely, he got up. He jumped up and down on his platform. He shouted to the lads on either side. He got two bait buckets, or two, two maggot boxes of water, logged them down the side with a little bit of ground bait and came in and fished on there. And he finished second in section. Now, at the end of every match where the hooter goes 20 30 40 50 100 blokes do exactly the same thing they all stand up they all clatter around a little bit they all throw a little bit of bait in the edge and then they don't do any fishing and i thought it was really really inspired little bit of fishing there that he he knew those fish were conditioned and he just i'm gonna go and he called it the pack-up method and it was it was ridiculous and you know what i did that uh, we were doing a film down at Viaduct, and Viaduct, uh, they, they get an awful lot of conditioning down there. I went down with, it was when I was working with Sky Sports, um, and what I find at Viaduct is that if you get down there first light, you can catch them in the edge really easy. And I said to the cameraman, we've got until about 9.30, and as soon as we get to 9.30, we'll stop catching in the edge. And he said, why is that? It's like, well, that's when the match anglers are normally walking around the bank because they draw at 9 o'clock. They all start. That's right. Yes. Yes. Um, so they draw at nine o'clock. By 9.30, they're all in the pegs. And what happens is the carp move out the edge and they go to the middle from 9.30. And he's like, really? I'm so like, yeah, it's generally that's what happens. Or I'm putting two and two together with what happens because I know that I can catch them in the edge really quickly, but I never have a bite after 9.15, 9.30. And we had our last, I had a double take at 9.15 and after that we couldn't catch one in the edge. Uh, and it was finished. So I've said, right, we need to move. We'll go out in the open water started catching in open water pinging bait over the top catching on zigs happy days caught a few and then i did i said let's just see if we can try something and it was about 4 30 in the afternoon and i jumped up and down on one of the platforms threw a load of bait in the edge chucked a rig on it within two minutes bang off it went 
Same sort of thing again. Commercial fish are conditioned so much, so, so much to what they can and can't do, that if you can think about the positive conditioning and use that and then avoid the negative conditioning, it'll work. Try it next time you're out. Well, let's um, let's talk about baits then. A little. Actually, you know, we've gone way off track here. <laughs> I've, I've had a bit of an agenda, but this is fascinating because fish behavior and, and, and everybody will be interested in, in, in your thoughts on this. But let's talk about baits a little bit. Um, are fish then conditioned? We all think, you know, you've got a, a standout bait that's, that's a game changer, the source as an example. Something like that yeah. that came onto the market, took everything by storm. How does that work then? If a fish has never come across um, a flavor or a bait before, how are they conditioned into taking that? What makes a, a new bait to the market or what makes something stand out when a boiler looks like a boiler to me, apart from the colors? How do they know the flavors, the senses? Same yeah. with ground baits. Well, they, look, they're, they're, they're hungry creatures, aren't they? So... You know, when they come across a food source, if they if they think they can eat it, they'll 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 pick it up and try it. So you know, I've I've got a rubbish sprouted in um in 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 carp angling circles as well, and it's typical um typical urban myth and people repeating something that someone else has said, but the person that said it in the first place was wrong. But because they had a little bit of authority and credibility, everybody after that believes it. Um, and, and let's yeah let's. Boilies is a prime example, and there's there's two stupid things that I've heard about boilies. Um, oh, they're not onto boilies yet; they won't eat them. Now, they need to be conditioned onto boilies. You know, when they're going onto a wild venue, they're on the naturals; they won't eat boilies. That's rubbish. They will eat boilies. No, 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 they're what they're, they're all on natural fish. They don't know what a boilie is. They don't care what a boilie is or isn't. You know, they don't know. They can't think it's a boilie. What they do is: is it food or isn't it food? It's not that, oh, the, 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 the bloodworm is, is food, but the boilie isn't food because it's a boilie and I'm suspicious of it. I'm not seeing what it is or not. There's a something. They go in, they'll smell it. Is it food or not? If they think it's food, they'll try it. Simple as. I've been to Romania uh, and fished lakes that have never been fished before. I've been to South Africa and fished lakes that have never been fished before. I've been to France that fished lakes that have never been fished before. And I've chucked boilies in that have, a sort of natural style smell so using a fish bait rather than a synthetic bait and you know what i've caught yeah I've caught loads and loads and loads a, a, a creature that's hungry is going to try what it thinks is food simple as that it will it will sample it equally equally i've heard it the other way around where the old club style have been we're banning boilies why is that because once you've put a boilie in the lake they won't eat anything else I mean, what I don't know if you've heard that. You know, the old school. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Oh, we're not having boilies on there. Once they're on them, you've got to fish boilies. They won't eat anything else. What a load of absolute horse. You know. It's the same them. argument with Bloodworm and Joker. That's why so many venues ban Bloodworm and Joker. They say, oh, yeah, no, they'll not eat anything else. Um, what we found the best, like Barston in particular, those fish, uh, giving away a few match secrets here now, um, but those fish will find food in a number of ways. They find it by smelling it. They find it by seeing it. But more importantly than anything else, they find it by hearing it. Okay, and that's that's remember this because so many fish are conditioned to hearing bait going in, but as anglers, we don't use sound as much as we should do. And let me just use a prime example, pinging pellets over the top of a pellet waggler. 
You know, those fish are coming in because they hear the plop and they're coming in. So it's not the bait that's yeah. conditioning them. It's the sound and it's the same with spotting. But a lot of the time we haven't put two and two into, together to do that enough in other things because we think, oh, great, they'll, you know, they're coming in on the pellets. So as a result, they're, 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 it works with a pellet waggler. Why won't that work when you're fishing a bomb and pellet? Why won't that work when you're fishing a feeder? Why won't that work in all sorts of other ways? And what we found at Barston was that if you spawn bait out, and spawn is a bait rocket that a load of bait goes into, you cast it out, it's the surface, loads of bait goes on the deck. If you use one of them, you'll catch a few fish. But actually, if you throw in stick bait over the top of it, or alternatively, you make your spawn open in the middle of the air, so it spreads bait and it's going rather than douche, you'll catch more fish because those fish are used to the sound. And the other thing there, we, you know, we've won international, um, home international carp angling events on that by using the birds because the fish hear the birds. Because as soon as someone gets a throwing stick and starts putting pellets or, or boilies out, the birds come down and they intercept them. So what has to happen is the fish have to move up in the water to try and get the bait before the birds do. So the fact that birds are hitting the water to get the boilies <laughs> means that the fish have to feed more aggressively to be able to get that. Now, if you put a big pile of bait and it goes down, the fish have got time to pick up one of 200 baits that's in those five spawns that you've put out. But if you're only putting them in two and three at a time, the birds love one or two and the carp love one or two and suddenly they start getting into a frenzy over it. So if you... It, it, the competition there are far too many team england secrets here now but the way that you can feed and use other things to attract <laughs> carp into feed you know it's ridiculous but uh, 150 percent seagulls have actually won team england carp medals seagulls have and you, and you wow. just i explained it to yeah. the world that the, we had a, we had a competition with the welsh there and they the, the guy i just can't understand why you're catching so many and we haven't they're on the peg next door i said how much bait have you used I said, we've probably used about 30 kilos. And he said, well, we've used about the same and we're on the same bait and we're in the next door peg. How have you caught and we haven't? He said, well, it's the way you're putting it in. He went, what do you mean? You know, you're wasting yours. Yeah. He said, the birds are having most of yours. At least we're getting dars down on the deck. And I went, well, that's your problem. I don't want the bait yeah. to fish. I want the bait to draw the birds in. So the birds draw the fish in. And then the only bait that they can eat is the hook bait. Because if you put 200 baits on the deck and one hook Fantastic. bait, to one chance whereas if we've got two baits in the water a goal's had one and the other one's the hook bait i'm winning so you know there's, there's loads right, of absolutely yeah yeah and, and I, I suppose that comes back that's a that's an outside the box thing but we've you know just thinking about sound as well and this is something that the anglers really really should think about more and I, i've I, i've i'm not going to say who he is but i've helped a match angler win a medal on the back of sound uh, because like, look, if you do this, this lap, it's like, oh yeah, I might try that. And he's, he started pinging pellets over the top and suddenly it's worked. And, you know, we won, um, we won a carp European championships on the basis of sound on a really, really big reservoir over in France. Uh, it was just before the French world championships. We've gone over for practice. There's loads of people on there and everybody wants to cast to the horizon because when you put international anglers in a line, that are all big, strong, tough, competitive fellas. What they want to do is get the dick out and show that they can cast further than everyone else. Because yeah. if I get 20 yards on you, there's this thing that the fish are coming in from the back. And if I'm further out than you, I'm going to catch more than you or quicker than you. And actually, what I found out doing a little bit of research in the venue was that um, it had been stocked fairly recently because they have to boost the stock to, to get the numbers up. And they, they'd stocked 2,000 
three to five kilo carp in the lake in readiness for the world championships because they wanted to boost the numbers. So those carp have lived in small shallow ponds and they've been fed with pellets. So I'm fishing in this competition because I, I, I fish in the practice matches. I, I manage the um, I, I manage the, the the main event, but I always fish in either the European as a player manager just because I want to understand the playing surface a little bit more. And um, I, I've yeah. I started pinging pellets down the edge, and then I'm, I'm fishing with Mark Barkley, double British champion, European champion. He's part of my World Cup squad, and he's laughing. He's going, "You and they, they take the Mickey out of me because I just fish really, really differently." And I'm pinging pellets down the edge and I've pinged pellets down the edge for about an hour and suddenly we've seen a fish roll. I was like, happy days, PVA bag down the edge. Everybody's casting 150 yards plus and I found that the fish were in six to eight feet of water because that was the comfort zone that they like to be in because that's what they've been used to all of their life, living in the pond that they were at. So that pressure was comfortable and they were also far fish that got used to being fed with pellets. So as soon as they heard the pellets landing, they knew they had to get there. Um, um, I passed that to the other two sections, and we and we won the European Championship just by doing Genius. something completely different. I, the, the the lads in in, in section uh, B section, I said, look, you need to find six to eight foot of water down the edge, and I need to ping over the top, and you need to be pellet, pinging six pellets every one minute. It's like, no. It's like, no, yes. It's like, no, 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 no. We've got some really, really good spots out there. We'll do this. It's like, no, you won't. You'll get back in the edge. And, uh, and one of them went, this is just ridiculous. And there was a load of resistance to the extent that I had to turn around and go, this is now a team order. Okay, I've asked you to do it. Don't question it. It's now a team order. Do it. And, it, and there was a bit of a, not a blow up, but it's like, oh, we're never going to catch now. We need to be out there. Anyway, about half an hour later, he's just come back and gone, you're not going to believe it. I've just had one. It's like, I am going to believe it because it's the sound. We just use sound to bring these fish in. No. But anyway, and, no, and I, that's almost a sort of a, ma- a match fishing style as well that you've just you know that what we would do. So going back to the point before about the crossover of the two denominations, they are becoming more and more sort of intertwined. And and on the last um, podcast that I did when I spoke to Tommy Pickering, you know he was saying that some of the things that he's learned from the carp fishing side to go into his feeder team has been a huge sort of impact, especially places like Spain and South Africa. And it's like you said, you know, here when it's warm, we'll ping, we'll make noise because we want to catch them in the the sort of the top 18 inches. When you're in South Africa or Spain, fish go to the bottom because it's too hot. So it's, you know, it's the complete opposite. And and they've learned from all these sort of, you know, from the different crossover of of the fishing disciplines. It's brilliant. It really is. An example then about noise, Rob, um, and we talk about fashion, if you like, or following the crowd. So when we're fishing matches for silverfish on a river or a large lake, expanse of water, and you're going to use ground bait, it, it, it's common that you'll what we call ball in. You know, you'll put sort of eight or nine balls yeah. of ground bait in, make the noise, draw the fish in. Never happens on a commercial. Why? Because people are too embarrassed to do it. You know, have a look at the... Um the submerged matrix submerged that we did with Jamie Hughes, where we were fishing at Western on the clay pit, uh, trying to catch F ones down the now, edge. I remember that, F1s, yeah. yeah, they are F ones are the craziest fish. They're just mad. Absolutely mad. They come in, they tear around everywhere. They just mess the peg up and they've gone. It's ridiculous. And you'll know And I, you know, I had a go at it earlier this year. Um, fishing, fishing slop. 
for them, you know, on, on a long pole. You know how ballistic it goes, where you've got them feeding just below the surface. They're just mad. It's like it's a, what you did with Alex uh, Lindholm. That was, I'd never held a pole before. That was shocking. Yeah. Spent the first hour trying to control a 15 meter or 13 meter pole. It was crazy. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, we can talk about that story later, but that was, that was a really interesting learning curve for me. Um, I wanted to go loco and chuck a feeder around because I thought I might have a, a chance there because obviously it's just carp fishing and I put me twists on it. And then when we drew Benny's <laughs> on the pole, oh my God. <laughs> you know, that's just, yes. that's not me at all. But, um, Anyway, the um, I forgot what I was saying there. That was it. Western pools. Um, the I think it really opened Jamie's eyes about how much bait the fish eat. So, which is why your bait application is really important. But sometimes, you know, there there is a thing where you can put too much bait in and you can create too much disturbance in the peg. And if you're fishing for F ones, I think that's absolutely right. But if you're fishing for carp, like. I, I wouldn't have any problem whatsoever balling in 10 good old oranges right at the start of the match and getting a deck of bait out in front of me somewhere, knowing that at some stage carp are going to be passing over the top of it and they'll they'll just get on it. And again, I don't want them going down the same hole. I would operate that area baiting side, but it might be the size of a room rather than the size of you know a, a tennis court. And people might look at that and go, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. You know what? Is it? Is it really ridiculous? Has anybody tried it? Yeah. No, absolutely. That's brilliant. I, I, it's food for thought. Food for thought. It really is. Tell us then, um, let's touch a little bit on um, the broadcasting side of things. How did you get into the broadcasting and, and, you know, how it led to where you are now, I guess? How do you manage broadcasting with managing the England Carp team for a start? Yeah, that, well, there's a little bit of a, a, a tricky one there because when I've got my England head on, I've got my England head on. So, you know, I, I don't do anything else. Um, I'm I'm a devil because when I go and, and cover an England event that's not carp fishing, I want to see everything. I want to film it. And yet when yes. I'm the manager, I want it at all. I don't want anybody near me. You know, I've got a job in hand. And the only thing that I've, I've that is important to me is winning a medal. That's it. nothing else. So... So it's a little bit of a conflict there because I don't want to, I don't want to be filmed when I'm in managerial role, but I want to film other people when they are. So um, <laughs> yeah. how did I get into it? Um, it started off in let's have a look. I won the World Cup in 1996, but I'm uh, some of you guys watching this might know, some might not know, but I'm a solicitor by trade. Uh, so I, I started off on my legal journey, and uh, because there weren't many solicitors that were anglers. Loads of people used to ask me angling questions, and they would. There wasn't a specialist fishery solicitor out there, so someone would come up and go, "Hey, you're a brief. This is a really complex environmental fishing question that no lawyers can answer. What's the answer?" I'm like, "Bloody hell!" And I kept getting asked these questions all the time. And um, yeah, I, I, I started learning a little bit more about fisheries and environmental law. So, going back now, rewind to 1996. Won the World Cup with my friend Simon Crow. Won the first ever World Cup and got invited to go on to tight lines as a result to talk about that and to discuss, you know, what had what had gone on. Now, back in the day, it was the presenter was Bruno Brooks, the uh, radio DJ, and the, the expert studio expert yeah. was Arthur. And what they used to do was they'd have another person in as well, so with three people doing it rather than two. Anyway. Um, 
went in, got on well with everybody, and the producer said, look, you, you've got some really interesting things to discuss here. Firstly, you obviously know what you're doing from the fishing side of things. But secondly, the legal side of things is also really important as well. Will you come back? So I said, yeah, I'd love to. So they then set up a, a, a sort of team of panels. And anybody that used to watch Tight Lines historically, you'll know that there would be a sea fishing one, there would be a match fishing one, there'd be a carp fishing one, there'd be a special one. And then four weeks later, it would go back and do sort of similar things like that. And then there was myself, there was Terry Hearn, there was Lee Jackson, and I think Frank Warwick, who were the four carp experts. Uh, so I used to go on quite a bit as one of the carp experts. And then um, having worked with Sky for a while, I said, look, there isn't a carp fishing program out there. And also I run the British Carp Angling Championships. Would it be possible to cover the, the, the BCAC? Can we get a slot about the BCAC on tight lines? So they said, yeah, no problem. So it was filmed and it went on. And then I said, great, can we do it the year after? And the guy said, well, it, it's, it's a little bit tricky now because of timings, the when it was on, et cetera, et cetera. They haven't got a camera available. Uh, so they said, well, why don't you do it? So if you can do it, because we can't send a camera down. If you can get a camera and you can do it, send it back to us, we'll show it. And I went, fine, no problem. Uh, so went out, made the package myself and sent it back. And they said, oh, that's brilliant, happy days. And I said, well, look, this event's getting bigger. Would it be possible for us to have our own standalone show? And I'll do exactly the same thing. So I had a meeting with the, the, the big bosses at Sky Sports and said, look, we would like to bring in a, a, a fishing competition on carp fishing. We got tight lines. There was also obviously Fishermania can we bring British carp champs in? So I met the guys, the, 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 the big boss that was there at the time, the head of, of Sky Sports, and he said, yeah, like your style, have a crack at it. Um, if you can do it, we'll give you a cameraman. You can do the presenting. You can use um, our edit suites and everything here. Uh, and that was it. So that was how setting up the BCAC coverage happened. Uh, and it went yeah. out, created yeah. really well. And I said, right, well, you can see the carp fishing is obviously very popular. How about we have our carp show? So let's have like tight lines, but it can sit along tight lines, but it's purely about carp fishing because carp fishing now is really, really growing. Uh, and he went, all right, same deal. So I went out and made the carp show, which was a six-part series. And then we also did another one, which was absolute match. Um, tight lines were still running. Uh, then did an extreme carp show, uh, covered other, other events. And, and that was it. Ran for I was with Sky for 15 years in total. Um, so tight lines was the anchor show that was on every week and then we would come in and we'd show the british carp angling championships the uk angling championships the carp show the extreme carp show absolute match just little magazine shows alongside it uh and then what happened six years ago uh bt got in touch with me and they said um we'd really like to talk to you uh so i thought yeah fine no problem let's let's have a little chat uh, and they made a proposition to, to to move from Sky Sports to BT Sport. One of the problems with Sky is it had become sort of very football dominated, and also they wanted continuity of block. Yeah. So we were on the UK Angling Championships April, May, June, and July, but they didn't want to show them until November, December, January. So had a chat with BT. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know, you need to get your events out as quickly as possible. Um, and any fishing on the telly is good, but actually, if we're really going to promote fishing, we want to. I've got a drive to make fishing. Uh, a lot more higher profile. I want uh, competitive angling to be seen and accepted as a sport, not just as a something. It needs to be seen as a sport. And I understand that recreational angling is very different from competitive angling. And I've had arguments and discussions and, yeah. and debates with numbers of people. And I had a, 
I had a discussion on Radio 5 and on Radio 4 uh, with some guys that were talking about how fishing can't be a sport because it's you wear a woolly jumper and you sit down to do it, and most people don't compete in it, so it's not a sport, it's a pastime. Well, actually, most people that go swimming don't compete, and most people that go jogging aren't racing, and most people that get on a push bike aren't cycle racing, but they're all classed as sports, so there's no reason why we can't. You know, If we've got that competitive element, we're a sport. Those that want to do it as a pastime, fine, but there is a sporting element. Anyway, BT were absolutely brilliant because they said, look, yeah, we love it, we'd like you to come over. Um, and I said, the, the, there is a bit of a condition. I'd like to make it weekly so we can have continuity uh, and effectively not reinvent tight lines, but it would be that thing. So there's a BT Sport version of it. So um, they said, yeah, brilliant. We've got the slot on, on Monday nights. Key primetime slot. You know, we started at 7 o'clock, but then moved to 9 o'clock because it was better. Um, but we've sat at that now for yeah. six years. The viewing figures are absolutely brilliant. And it was interesting because literally just after we, we'd agreed to do that, Sky Sports chopped tight lines. And, it, you know, it was a real shame. Yes. It's great to see fishing on the TV. But Sky Sports just decided that they didn't want fishing anymore other than Fishermania. Um, so, of course, more or less all fishing moved to, um, to BT Sport. Uh, and it was, it was brilliant. You know, obviously it worked very well for me because I'd, I thought it's a big thing to leave a company you've worked with for 15 years. So I left... Sky Sports to move to BT Sport and thought, wonder how it'll go. And actually, BT Sport flew and Sky Sky fell. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, the, yeah. Choice. BT, BT had just been absolutely brilliant. They're really, really supportive of angling. Um, I can give you a bit of a scoop that I was. I actually had a, a meeting with with the, the heads of BT Sport um, earlier this week, uh, and we're talking about you know the next three years programming. There's going to be some really, really good, interesting new programming coming out. That it's great with 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 BT Sport because they actually see angling as a really important sport and a really important part of their sporting package. Whereas I think sometimes it had been bolted on in the past just on the back of football as a filler, but now it's seen as a key sport. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as you said, any angling on TV is great, but it's got to be the right angling as well. It's got to be done in a way that's going to attract viewers. I think that's what I quite liked about the whole, the terrestrial bit with the, you know, the Paul Whitehouse, the Bob Mortimer thing. It, it actually wasn't, uh, you know, they weren't catching many fish, if you like, but it was catching the essence of fishing. And it was also yes. talking about the the benefits, the mental health. So, you know, them lads have had bad health conditions and just the very sort of solace that fishing gives to them, you know, is another aspect of angling. You know, it, as you said, we've covered competition a lot here in this podcast, which is great. That's exactly what I wanted. But when we think, of, go right back to the start of our conversation, the common denominator between our, all of us is catching fish. And, and I think... As long as we can get that essence and we can get that sort of brief across to the the non-angling public, then we're in a great place. And you're doing your bit on BT. Those lads have done their bit on BBC. And for me, if I can get a few extra people fishing just from these little podcasts, then, you know, I'll be happy as well. But we are coming to the end of our time now, Rob. So I think to wrap up, what does the future hold for yourself and the England Carp team? Oh, well, we've got we've got some big events coming up this year. We've got the Ladies World Championships, which we're hosting. So it's great to see um, female participation increasing and and getting the publicity that it deserves. You know, we've got a very very fierce set of England lionesses who are who are going to be going out to try and uh, win gold for England Brilliant. this year. Uh, yeah. I'm looking up uh, is in September, back end of September in Ukraine. Uh, so we're back on with that. 
uh, we're hopeful that the calendar won't be uh, disrupted. Obviously, last year it was disrupted completely. So um, we're not going to get a chance to practice in Ukraine, which is difficult. It's just going to be straight in. So, you know, going in cold somewhere like that, it's quite a fierce country with uh, fiercely competitive anglers over there. So we're going to have our work cut out, but we'll we'll certainly give it our all uh, and have a bit of a go over there in Ukraine. Uh, there'll be the Tri-Nations and the Home Nations events, both for the men and the women, uh, later on in the year too. So, yeah, competition-wise, as far as carp fishing is concerned, brilliant. UK Champs Match Fishing, we're covering that this year. That's all systems go. Park Dean Masters, I would think, is going to be running. Hopeful we might be able to do something with Match This as well. Uh, plus, of course, you know, every Monday night there's always some fishing on the telly as well. So we're, we're, we're going out and doing all sorts of things. There's really, really new and exciting programming coming out this year. So it's going to be great. Nice. Fantastic. And, and thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. It really has. And we could continue talking about fish behavior and, and under the surface for, for hours. And I certainly could anyway. So hopefully you've enjoyed it. And, and a big, big thank you uh, for joining me on the big chat. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. For all your fishing needs, be sure to check out Fishing Evolution. Boasting two floors of branded displays, visit our recently expanded superstore at Hadley Road in Sleaford, where we offer a huge range of tackle from all of the leading course and cart brands, such as Nash, Fox, Corda, Drennan, Preston, Guru, Daiwa, and many, many more. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram where we share all of the latest news and updates about products available in store. Okay, let's jump into the tackle shed then and have a little look at some of the reviews that have been out and about. Now, because of the uh, the timing of this episode, we haven't got the monthly magazines to look at, but there's been loads of stuff uh, online and uh, also in the weekly press. So jumping back to the Angling Times on the 23rd, there's a really good review by uh, tackle editor Mark Sawyer on umbrellas. Now, you might think such a, a basic product, a brolly's a brolly, right? They keep you dry, but absolutely not. I, I like to fish under a brolly when I can. So um, I want to have a good one, you know? know what I mean and um, I've had more problems with umbrellas than anything else I remember spending significant amount of money on a really really high-end brand uh, a few years ago it lasted a couple of months I've had cheap and cheerful jobs from the high street from uh, an Argos one I had for years but it weighed a ton so it is an important aspect for comfort for many many anglers um, now there's all sorts of wide-ranging ones in in the uh, in the article as well um, you can have a little read have a little review yourself see what you think but I think from my side I just wanted to do a bit of a tried and tested piece and explain I think I've had mine now for about two years it's a Renan umbrella I plumped for the slightly smaller one 45 inch and for an outlay of around I think it was 75 pound um, I expected good things and, and I, I am not disappointed whatsoever it's robust it's strong the ribbons very sort of well made uh, and so far so good you can peg it down get yourself nice and comfortable especially when fishing the pole a um, little bit different probably more often than not will fish uh, just in my waterproofs if I'm fishing a rod and line but uh, nine times out of ten, I want to get an umbrella up and I want to be comfortable. So I thought it was a good review. He's gone through the card from everything from the more expensive dial ones right through to the more sort of budget friendly as well. Uh, but from my perspective, from a tried and tested piece, I would absolutely wholly recommend the Drennan range. Um, okay, also looking in the same episode on the 23rd. is an interesting rod. I've not seen one for years and years. We spoke on the last episode around Avon-style rods, those where you've got a sort of a quiver tip and a, and a sort of, 
you know, a slightly more flexible one. Well, a similar theme, there's there's an all, it's called an all-round rod from TF Gear. Um, it comes with a float tip section and obviously a quiver tip section with a selection of three tips. Um, it can also be used eight foot or 10 foot. So very versatile rod. I saw that in the in the bargain area there for 60 pound at totalfishinggear.co.uk. So for those anglers that perhaps um, just get out and about and, 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 you know, don't want to carry loads and loads of kit, and you want that versatility. It was just something I thought was quite interesting. I've not seen a rod like that for some time we all take sort of very specific models specific styles with us and you know you end up taking all sorts but for the pleasure angler or for those that you know the club angler that just wants to sort of have a bit of versatility on the day then that could be something worth looking at okay a couple of bargains as well that were in the uh the the magazine is uh the abby garcia silver max spin reel which i thought was quite interesting okay it's marked up as a spinning reel but it could be used for i'm sure for light waggler work and uh you know a bit of feeder work as well it's a front drag reel, three ball bearings, RRP of $59.99, and it's offer at the minute for only 30 quid, so pretty much half price um, at fishingmegastore.com. So from the sublime right the way through to the ridiculous, really, and and I spotted and I just, you know, loved this reel when I saw it straight away. And, and uh, we have touched upon sort of, you know, more affordable gear for everybody, but of course there's those anglers amongst us that love to splash out and get the very, very best possible, and why not? And there's a real, uh, in England Times the other week, the, the new Daiwa 20 Tournament QD. It looks absolutely fantastic. Um, and for £350, I imagine that it performs fantastic as well. But if you're in the market for a top, top range reel, um, then it looks like Daiwa's new one will be a big hit. And I can contest to that as well. I've got a number of sort of, a couple of TDXs that I've had for probably about eight years now. And they weren't cheap at the time, but they're still going strong. And, you know, I wouldn't swap them from anything. So... Yeah, top range reels, Daiwa, are going to come out onto the market soon. Uh, jumping across to this week, um, some really sort of bits and pieces, all sorts going on there. But there was one uh, article that really sort of caught my eye, and it's about hooks. And it talks about the best silverfish hooks. Now, as I sort of flicked through and I had a good read of these sort of different hooks, if you like, there was three patterns that stood out. And again, if we're talking about tried and tested, and if I was to recommend the hooks that I've used, um, over many, many, many years, they are in this list. So, yes, there's the new Guru ones there, and there's all sorts of new fangled brands, but there's three patterns that I would recommend to anybody, and that is the Kamazan B520, which is probably the best all-round silverfish maggot hook that you could use on a natural venue because they are barbed, of course. Uh, commercials wouldn't be allowed, but um, you could flip that over then to a canal or perhaps a small stream or, or smaller fish you need a little bit more fine wire and the review there is of the b511 again these hooks are over 30 years old and they're still making it into the tackle reviews even to this day fantastic and the last one which i do use a lot um, on the rivers but also i use the commercial version is the red maggot so i used i've probably used the drennan carp red maggot now for around 10 years on and off i've flirted with other other brands um, but i always come back to it and that's whether it's you're not just using a maggot, I'll use it with corn, I'll use it with pellets, whatever. Um, but for that sort of, I guess, October through to around now, March time, I always use a Drennan red maggot. I just think the red makes a difference in the in the clear water. And the red maggot is covered off there in the review as well. 
Okay, moving on to baits then. I'm really excited to talk about a new range of baits that I've actually helped put together uh, for the guys over in the Midlands there at Teddy Fisher. Um, the Teddy Fisher range is pretty much made up of, of very natural ingredients. It's a natural range. It, it, uh, we believe they will work on any venue. Um, the cart mixes, the special mixes, perfect for commercials. All the others, your roach, bream, etc., you know, fantastic for, for those species. Um, but there does seem to be a bit of sort of a misconception that you need to have fish meal in your uh, in your mixes for commercial waters because of the amount of pellets, because of the amount of boilies, etc., that are fed. Um, we disagree, but there's obviously a demand for it. So we're addressing that demand and I've helped put together a range of premium milled expander uh, and it's going to be called Excite. Um, there's going to be four in the range. There's going to be the pure, there's going to be the green, a halibut and also a krill uh, mix to go with it as well. And the idea is you would take a bag of the uh, the Teddy Fisher mix. So let's say, for example, I was targeting a mixed commercial fishery. I'd probably use a bag of uh, special green. And what I could then do is, is pop a little bit of a handful or so of the, uh, of the pure milled expander green, mix that in there, and I've got myself a, a perfect sort of sweet fish meal mix, if you like. Similarly, if I'm going down the edge with perhaps using our carp mix, uh, I could add some of that krill or halibut just to give a bit of a fish meal sense as well. So it's a versatile piece. Winter, you can use it on its own. Of course, you can use it on its own anywhere, um, around a method perhaps pure milled expander um, i know that it'll work because it's premium grade stuff so that will be uh, available pretty soon also continuing with the bait theme and the final thing here we're going to cover off in the tackle shed is something that caught my eye in the angling times this week and it's from willy worms they've got a couple of new pure liquids and the main one that caught my eye was the liquid dendrobinas uh, 225 now willy worms obviously it's what they do along with a range of tackle and baits um, uh, you know their worms are top notch um, so it makes sense that their liquids that are designed alongside will be top notch as well and as it says um Willy worms are taking its favourite hook baits and feeds and hydrolyze them together with natural pre-digestive enzymes to release pure amino acids that the fish are instantly attracted to. So alongside this liquid dendrobina one, there's also a super sweet corn. Uh, they're £6.49. Uh, it looks like they'll go a long way as well. Um, now for me, worms is probably my favourite bait. If I was to use one bait all year round, um, then sort of the, the old medium dendrobinas would come out of the bag i guess the big challenge with it is the cost and also the supply um they are quite expensive they're not available everywhere that's why i have a big old compost in my back garden so i can always get one or two just to even try on the hook um, but by adding um, a liquid additive if you like to sort of bulk out um the supply that you've got really really does help i i tend to bulk out with whether it be micros um whether it be some chopped maggots get some dead maggots and chop them in with your worms as well just to bulk it out a little bit and make your worms go a bit further but adding liquids is exactly the same i use the teddy fisher blood worm booster um, and these this looks great as well liquid dendrobina so that could be something worth giving a try too well that brings us to the end of episode three i can't believe it already three episodes in um it only seems 10 minutes since the wife suggested that i begin doing these uh, these podcasts and i am thoroughly thoroughly enjoying them and i hope you do too so i wish you all the best i will catch you on episode four where i'll be having the big chat with all-round shimano backtangler mr nick speed tight lines and take care